0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Darrell Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Knee pain is extremely common, affecting millions of people. It's estimated that knee pain accounts for over 12 million outpatient visits to healthcare providers per year. Whether patients have acute knee pain as a result of an injury or chronic knee pain from osteoarthritis, it can result in major changes in one's lifestyle, often reducing our ability to remain active. To help us sort out knee pain, we have with us today Dr. Daniel Seris, an orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine physician with a specialty in knee surgery and regenerative medicine. Daniel, welcome. Thank you very much, Dr. Chatka. It's very nice to be here. Well. Knee pain is very common. I have an outpatient practice and that's probably the most common joint I see affected by, uh, by pain. What questions should we ask patients when they have a complaint of knee pain?
1: Yeah, there's not one golden question that solves the whole diagnosis. But what I think is most important to spend about a minute or two just listening to their story All of their stories will be individual. They'll all be a little bit different, but the overall story will be the same. And the common denominator is pain uh, that limits their quality of life and their activities of daily living. And after I've listened to that, and you know it's probably arthritis or it's probably a meniscus problem, you zoom in with some detailed questions like, how often does it bother you? How much does it bother you? Do you use medication? How far can you walk? Does it keep you up at night? What have you done about it? And the most important one, I think, when we talk to these people is, what's your reason to be here today? What are you expecting from us? How can I help? What are the things that they are uncertain about or they have questions about? Those are the questions that I'm interested in.
0: And I think as with most problems in medicine, The history usually gives me the most information in terms of what's going on in terms of the cause of their pain.
1: I fully agree with that, I fully agree with that and that's where everything uh, comes together. The patients really have their own story and it doesn't really matter what their background is, they will tell you the story, we just need to listen appropriately and then you zoom in with a few final questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, I try never to take the lead too much but let them lead the discussion where they want us to help.
0: Okay. Let's talk about two different groups, our younger patients and our older patients. What are the more common causes of knee pain in younger individuals?
1: Yeah, so those are usually traumatic or overuse injury. Um, So that can be either related to their work, uh, their activities of daily living at home, uh, or more frequently sports activities, of course. Uh, One of the ones that I'm getting more familiar with here in Minnesota now is CrossFit. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, Mm -hmm. but that's a hobby that people do here that really exerts their body to the limit, and especially their knees. So I would say in young people it's trauma uh, and in older people it's obviously osteoarthritis. Right, okay.
0: One question that I've always had is when is it time to get an X-ray?
1: Yeah, Um, we sometimes struggle with that because an X-ray that's taken too early doesn't really serve a purpose and an X-ray that shows the obvious also doesn't. So I have the same question as you. I think it's really important if it changes your um, treatment algorithm um, if it helps you explain the disease by showing the patient the picture and, and that can go in both directions so if you have a patient that's really concerned about their pain and you don't necessarily think it's a severe case of anything a normal looking x-ray can help you explain and put their mind at ease But the other way around is the same thing. So if you know it's severe osteoarthritic or inflammatory disease, uh, an x-ray can also make people understand why they need to take it more easily or why they need to maybe progress to the next phase of treatment. Mm -hmm. So I think an x-ray is uh, nowadays quite safe, quite simple, and uh, makes sense to do in an earlier phase of treatment.
0: I've noticed that the degree of osteoarthritic changes on x-ray don't, often don't
1: correlate with the patient's symptoms. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. So we do see a lot of patients who don't have uh, that much pain, even though their x-ray looks terrible. Right. And that's why it's very important for all of us to keep reminding patients that we treat them. We don't treat the imaging. Yeah. And sometimes if they read the imaging report through the portal or uh, through other ways of getting their medical information, people come in quite scared because it looks uh, terrible. If you read, you have end-stage bone-on-bone disease. But they still play 18 holes. They still work on the farm. They still play around with their grandkids. And uh, I think that's on us to explain that the imaging and what they feel aren't one-on-one related.
0: In the past, uh, patients were disappointed if we didn't get a knee x-ray. Now they're disappointed if we don't get a knee MRI. Yes. When is that imaging study indicated?
1: Yeah, that's a very uh, very important one to manage better. We still see... 70 year olds or uh, even 83 year olds with a knee MRI and I think you have to have really good indication to do that. There are countries where there are rules that say if you're above 45 uh, you should have a good explanation to do a knee MRI otherwise it will show more than you can treat. So I think if you have mechanical symptoms, if you have an effusion that you cannot fully explain, uh, if you have a sense of instability or uh, loose body in the knee then it merits an MRI. If you just want to evaluate knee pain in an elderly person and you can decide where you put that age uh, boundary, then I think we should stay away from MRIs because they will show a lot of uh, findings in the result that will scare patients. And I would say if people have wrinkles or gray hair, they will have a tear on the MRI of their knee in the meniscus, and that's almost nothing you should really treat. Um, So an MRI is more dangerous uh, to use because it can scare patients into surgery, which is sometimes not necessary. Yeah,
0: I I think a comment you made is most important that if it's going to change the direction of your management, it's worth getting some type of imaging.
1: Uh, Fully agree. So, uh, and there I would say that if you think that this patient does have mechanical complaints from a meniscus or a loose body, and you are thinking towards a knee arthroscopy, then I do think it makes sense to do an MRI. Not always, but frequently. Um, If you feel that you don't fully understand their complaints, then I do think that an MRI makes sense as long as you are willing to explain to them that even if it shows a signal change that may resemble a a meniscus tear, that doesn't necessarily mean it needs surgery. Uh, And if you manage those expectations well, it can be a useful adjunct. Uh, We don't want to uh, waste money and time and facilities uh, if it doesn't change the way we treat patients. You've
0: mentioned meniscal tears What actually causes meniscal tears? What type of activity is most commonly gonna result in a tear of the meniscus?
1: So there again, you can see two waves. So you will see the younger patients with a traumatic meniscus tear, usually related to an unstable knee or a pivoting sports where they tear their meniscus and their ACL at the same time. And we'll probably talk about that a little bit later. And those are healthy tissues with an impact that's higher than they can resist. And it's usually a squishing turning motion that hyperflexes and turns the knee. and um, The other group is where the tissues degenerate and then it's just a progressive pain in the knee that sometimes when they get up out of the sofa or when they're kneeling down in church or in the garden and they get up they feel a, a tearing popping sensation in their knee and that's this t- tissue giving out on them. Both are very different in their origin and both are also treated differently.
0: Okay. Can meniscal tears heal on their own?
1: In younger patients with healthy tissues and good vascularization, yes. They can heal even up to 60%. In older tissues, no, because it's like asking cooked spaghetti to heal. Uh, That will not work. And the same for surgery. So degenerative meniscus tears will not do well with surgery. Younger, healthy tissue with meniscus repair procedures will do quite well, especially if the knee is stable and the patient is otherwise healthy. So how do we manage
0: meniscal tears? Let's say we suspect one, we get an MRI, it confirms it. When do we get aggressive and recommend arthroscopy versus observation?
1: Yeah, that's really important. And I don't think there's one correct answer. What is really important, again, is to differentiate if it is a younger patient with healthy tissue in a traumatic uh, situation that has a normal meniscus that is now torn. Those patients should be referred early and we should aggressively follow them and treat them because if they lose the meniscus tissue, there is a linear correlation between the amount of tissue lost and the amount of osteoarthritis at 5 or 10 years even. And there I would err on the side of being overly cautious, so send them to us and we will help them make the decision. On the other side we need to be very careful because we know that 30% of the patients who have a knee arthroscopy uh, with pain as the main reason in degenerative meniscus tears do worse than without surgery. We know that they have 12% more complications than the people who never had surgery. So the degenerative meniscus tear should be managed conservatively with physical therapy, non-steroidals, guided activity and the grinding motion of moving your knee will grind down the tissue, the body will resorb it and that's the way to manage a degenerative meniscus tear. Unless it mechanically locks the knee. If the knee is mechanically locked and you can't do your normal activities then it could be considered to do a knee arthroscopy.
0: Okay. I see these young athletes in their 20s, maybe 30s, get meniscal tears as a result of their sport. Are they at risk for degenerative arthritis as a result of recurrent meniscal tears?
1: Yes. Okay. That's a very simple one. So if you miss half of your meniscus, there's 50% chance of osteoarthritis at 10 years. If your whole meniscus out, it's 100%. Um, so those are very important patients to pick up on and we have techniques now that are reliable in restoring meniscus volume, in retaining the patient's own meniscus or even replacing their meniscus by a meniscus transplant, and these procedures alter the numbers in the short term and probably in the long term, but we're still waiting for the 20-year data on that.
0: Okay. Let's talk about another cause of knee pain. How about uh, patellofemoral pain syndrome? What what actually is that?
1: Yeah, that's a bag of uh, interesting challenges, I would say. So patellofemoral pain syndrome can be many things. The ones that I think we can treat well as surgeons are the ones where mechanical alignment is off or where stability is off, where there is a anatomical or functional reason that we can address after you've tried proper rehabilitation, preventive measures and uh, realignment through non-surgical measures. Uh, there's, just as in low back pain, also a contingency of patients that Um, project the challenges of life uh, on their knee and and therefore experience pain. And they clearly have a a challenge that we can help them with, but the solution isn't surgical. And I think we need to make sure that we don't put patients in that category where if they're not supposed to be there, but we should definitely not start surgery on them too early. Okay. Um, What I also see nowadays more, and a little bit more here than in my previous practice in Europe, I think, Daryl, is people who carry around too much weight. And if you carry around too much weight, especially on your knees where body weight is uh, five to seven times higher uh, load on your knee when you walk stairs or get up out of a chair, uh, every 10 or 15 pounds that are too much project on the patellofemoral joint. Uh, and those patients we see a lot of here and clearly that treatment is not surgical. It's dietary, mm-hmm. it's lifestyle changes, it's giving them the information to need, uh, they need to heal themselves and to treat themselves better. Okay. Bursitis of the knee,
0: not very common, but I've seen a few patients with answering bursitis, and uh, the patient actually thought it was knee pain, so it can present similar to knee pain. What, what actually is going on there?
1: Yeah, I agree with you that that can be a, a tricky diagnosis, especially because it's on the medial side of your knee. Some of these patients have varus osteoarthritis as well, but uh, if you just see the X-ray, you see the OA, but you don't examine them, and you feel that it's actually the tendon, then you can miss that. So, um, a repetitive strain injury of the tendon attachment, just like you could have in a tennis elbow uh, or in a rotator cuff injury, can also pr- project on the patellofemoral joint or on the hamstring attachment to the tibia, and that's where the pes anserinus bursitis comes in. So, you can use diclofenac gel or a similar NSAID. You can use corticosteroid injections under ultrasound guidance and you can uh, use isokinetic training uh, and isometric exercises to treat those patients conservatively. That hardly ever, I would say, never needs surgical intervention.
0: Okay, and how about an ACL injury? What causes that?
1: Sports season, Mm -hmm. we're we're almost ready, although now with the current situation, the situation is different, but when basketball season starts, when football season starts, uh, ACL season starts. So those are usually a pivotal motion, a valgus motion on the knee, or really deep flexion in skiing kids where the ACL is torn because of the forces on the ligament being higher than what Mother Nature built us to resist. Uh, and that's an important injury to pick up on. They usually feel a pop or they people around them even hear a pop, like a whip going off, um, and then the ACL is torn. Okay.
0: So let's get now into the management of osteoarthritis and... Where do we start? Um, Patient comes in with knee pain, history's pretty classic, it's been going on gradually worse for years. Where do we start with those patients?
1: Well, that depends on who we are at that point. Uh, If we're in the primary care situation, that's clearly different than when they end up in my office or or yours for that matter. So I think it's really important to figure out uh, where the patient is in the step-by-step approach of treatment. And then um, if they have had a couple of the steps in treatment that we have, such as pain management, lifestyle changes, um, physical intervention, we need to check if all of those phases that they were in were done in the way that you and I are used to uh, them being done here at Mayo Clinic or, or elsewhere with a high level of expertise. Because sometimes physical therapy isn't physical therapy. And sometimes the medication that they've been using is different than the medication that we think is ideal. So the fact that they've mentioned that they've had those steps doesn't mean you can't revisit them with proper explanation and execution. Um, I don't think you should ever proceed to surgery or bracing if you haven't done the steps before that because they are there for a purpose and they always serve a purpose to some extent in every patient. Okay,
0: I'm always in a dilemma when a patient comes in with obvious osteoarthritis of the knee and they're a runner, yes. long-distance runner. Yes, yes. Do we tell them to not run? I hate to do that because you're going to decrease their activity, but well, does that worse? you know this
1: as well, there I mean, runners are addicts, right? Yeah, they are. So they're endorphin addicts. It's very difficult for the patient-doctor relationship to tell them you shouldn't run because they'll go somewhere else and listen to that doctor. Mm-hmm. But uh, obviously, if people start running at a later age or when they haven't been physically active and then they develop knee pain, then we need to tell them that this is not what your body is used to. We need to help them. Find a proper way to do those activities if they want to. Or sometimes you need to have the difficult discussion with them. If they've been running their whole life or a large part of it and now they develop complaints while running, they usually know very well that this is something they need to face. And then you need to help them change from a runner to a swimmer or a cyclist. Or you need to limit the mileage that they do. Sometimes people say, oh, I've already cut down, and then if you really drill down, they went down from 80 to 50 miles a week, Uh, and that can still be too much. But
0: convince them maybe a non-weight-bearing type of aerobic activity.
1: Absolutely. Or you can even give the knees a break, so to speak, by um, doing a little bit of biking, a little bit of light running, because you need to get the endorphins, and then get them into hydrotherapy and running in the pool. There you do not have the same Mm -hmm. mechanical load on the knee joints, the resistance for running in water, is multiple times higher than resistance running in air, so they can spend more energy. Uh, And that's a good way to have them do what they're familiar with, but still have it happen to your knees in a different way.
0: How about steroid injections?
1: Yeah, those can be very useful adjuncts, but they only work in 30 to 40% of patients, and that doesn't mean they work 0% or 100%. They sometimes work well in a patient that has a, a responder profile, and sometimes they don't work as well. Uh, there's no test that you can do up front to see if they will or will not work. So I think it's worthwhile if a patient has an acute flare-up, if they have an effusion, uh, and if pain is their main uh, important driver for coming to see you, an intraarticular injection can be really beneficial. And done in expert hands with good standard technique that has a reliable um, prediction of 30 to 40% results, which can last for weeks, sometimes months.
0: How about the artificial synovial joint injection? I know when that first came out, everybody was excited about it, and I think the enthusiasm has diminished somewhat. Are, are they useful?
1: It fluctuates, so the um, Synvisc or the other uh, brands uh, Visco supplementation, the, some patients call them rooster comb injections, uh, also have an efficacy of about 40%. There's um, a challenge understanding the literature because there's a lot of competition between companies saying mine is better than yours, and the comparative trials, uh, like you said before, the jury's still out on them. There are not many side effects, and if the insurance company pays and the patient understands the expectations, I think they do have a place in more chronically painful knees. Uh, where the flare-up has been treated by rest or by corticosteroids or NSAIDs. And then if this grinding knee pain is something that um, hurts the patient, there is a role for visco supplementation, but it should not be overstated.
0: And then finally, how about knee arthroplasty? When is it indicated that we go to surgery?
1: Yeah, That's a very doctor and patient-specific choice. I would say overall... Um, there's a tendency to do arthroplasty in younger patients at the moment that we should probably try to steer away from. The ideal patient is the 74-year-old with a BMI of 26. Um, she, She can't get around the way she wanted to do before, and we can help those patients very well if pain is their main reason. The 52-year-old factory worker who still needs to work a couple of years until uh, he or she is able to retire and who wants to bowl and and go ice fishing and and have an active weekend life, that's not such a good candidate. But in short, pain uh, every day that wakes you up at night. If people can't walk more than a few blocks, uh, if people use pain medication and walking aids to do so, Those are usually quite serious candidates, and they should have x-ray changes. A patient with severe knee pain but a normal x-ray, you need to look further. You need to look at the hips, you need to look at the back, you need to look at inflammatory disease, because a normal x-ray usually doesn't mean osteoarthritis, as you know. I want
0: to turn just a little bit to another area of your expertise, and that's what the regenerative medicine role will play in managing osteoarthritis. There's some pretty exciting information regarding this.
1: Yeah, and there again, I think we should go back to what we talked about earlier. There's two age groups. So in the young patients that have cartilage damage or meniscus damage, regenerative medicine and cell-based therapy can restore their articular cartilage, and we can improve the outcome of meniscus repair in young patients with healthy tissue. We can culture their cells, or we can develop new one-stage technology where we mix their own recycled cells with allogeneic MSCs from the MSC bank. And within one surgery, for a tenth of the price, we can now fix the hole in the cartilage. These are still ongoing FDA-monitored trials, but uh, I agree with you, these are important new developments. On the other side of the spectrum, um, you can use growth factors and cytokines from the patient's own blood or from bone marrow to improve the wound healing response in osteoarthritis. Osteoarthritis doesn't threaten our life, and therefore evolution or the the body, the biology, hasn't catered us with a system to fight the pain of osteoarthritis, but we are trying. You can measure cytokines, you can measure MSCs in the synovial fluid of arthritis patients, but the levels are too low for it to have a healing effect. Now we can use cultured MSCs, or MSCs from the patient themselves, to administer them to their arthritic joint to help mitigate the pain and the inflammatory process. Those are still under investigation as well, but I think the horizon for treatment is probably within the next two and three years. And in institutions like ourselves here at Mayo, we have ongoing trials for osteoarthritis of the knee, osteoarthritis of the hip, and for the surgical repair with cells of young patients with defects in their joints. So are you talking
0: about small focal defects in cartilage or the patient who
1: has pretty much wiped out all of their cartilage, they got bone on bone? Yeah, so both. The focal defects in the younger patients we can treat with cell-based surgical technology and the patients with pain related to Grade three and four, so bone on bone or a little before that, we can treat with injection therapy based on cellular response, PRP and BOMA or Aspart concentrate and some others that are under development. So we have two areas of challenge, solving osteoarthritic pain, because I don't think we can reverse osteoarthritis, and preemptively treating joint damage so it doesn't progress or doesn't progress as quickly. And for both, regenerative medicine has exciting new options. Some of them are established treatments Uh, therapies that are insurance covered now, so cartilage cell therapy is something we can do at Mayo Clinic with insurance covered cartilage repair and the one stage technology is under FDA FDA evaluation, it's an improvement for the patient because they only need one surgery and the injection therapy is under scrutiny and investigation but I do expect that some of those therapies will make it into standard of care and they will improve what we can do for the arthritic patient as well
0: We've had so little to offer our patients with osteoarthritis, analgesics, anti-inflammatory medicines, physical therapy, and ultimately surgery. So this is a very attractive alternative that uh, hopefully will give patients some real
1: benefit. I agree. And at the same time, there's also a threat because we do see what I now sometimes fear are stem cell hopefuls. And these are 93-year-old people who send us emails and say, oh, can I please have stem cells for my low back pain? Or can I please have stem cells for my knee? And I even see patients who have been treated and have spent many, many thousands of dollars in non, uh, I would say, reliable stem cell clinics around the world. Um, And I, I think we should protect patients from that and make sure that we have good information for them to rely upon, like your podcast and other information that comes from Mayo Clinic and other situations, because there are developments. And we need to make sure that those developments are not hindered by some of the bad stories that come from this stem cell hocus pocus at the same time. And that's why the Center for Regenerative Medicine and the Orthopedics Department, the Physical Rehabilitation Medicine at Mayo, are reliable partners for good information that patients can trust and follow.
0: Well, Daniel, let's finish by asking you to summarize, maybe in a few points, some key features of knee pain in the adult.
1: Yeah, I'll try, Daryl. So I think that knee pain in the adult is a very important quality of life driver and therefore we should take it seriously. I think prevention is the best one, so don't start long distance running if you haven't trained properly, if you're older then is wise. Try to manage your weight and try to manage overloading your joints. And if you have joint damage, see your local doctor and talk to them about the various treatment options, because sometimes it's better to treat early and have a long time benefit from that than come in too late because you are managing it yourself. Don't trust the MRI. If it says you have a tear, that doesn't mean you need surgery. And knee pain can be debilitating. At every age, it will disrupt the quality of life, and we are here to help. We've been discussing knee pain with Dr.
0: Daniel Saris, an orthopedist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Daniel, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you very much for having me, Daryl. It was a pleasure.